the tales of Northern Michigan's past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. As we learned during our last episode with guest Diana Stanfler, it seems that there was not only an extreme amount of responsibility, there was also a lot of trauma and drama came along with the job of being a lighthouse keeper back in the day. And even presently, there is still a dark energy that can be felt at some lights. So many of the people I speak with that live in lighthouses here in Michigan as temporary caretakers report odd events in the buildings and the surrounding grounds. There's a lighthouse, I'm gonna leave nameless, so the listeners will have to do a little of their own investigating. I visit this particular lighthouse because I first read about the reported hauntings there in a book years ago. So periodically I stop by in order to continue to document and compare the reports of paranormal activity that have been shared with me over the course of 20 plus years by at least five different caretakers. And along with the ghostly stories, which I've become quite used to hearing, the last keepers I spoke with, oh, maybe two years ago, told me that there had been two suicides on the surrounding beach property during the two years they had been living there. The couple that shared this tragic fact with me had originally taken the opportunity to live there for the same reason many of us would like to stay in a lighthouse. It had seemed like a romantic getaway. They very much enjoyed their time while living there as keepers and residents, but they were obviously still a bit shaken by the grievous events that had happened under their tenure. And now, back to talk more with us about her new book, Death and Lighthouses on the Great Lakes, A History of Murder and Misfortune, is author Diana Stanfler. Welcome back, Diana. Thanks, Chris. Always happy to continue talking with you about historical things here in Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Well, it's an it's a endless uh, subject. I'd love to... Love to... <laughs> We never have a shortage of things to talk about. <laughs> no, never. I. In fact, now I've got like 15 more things I want to talk with you about, so we'll, we'll save those <laughs> for future episodes. Which is your personal favorite in, in, in the new book? Gosh, I, you know, you're not supposed to ask about favorites. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Um, Which is your favorite child? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I have a favorite grandchild. That's, that's easy. Oh, yeah, because there's, there's only one. I guess one of, my f- one of the more fascinating ones, again, because I actually walked the space or near the space was Grand Island up near Munising. Beautiful. And, you know, everybody or many people are familiar with the channel light there. It's very distinctive. It's, it's a dark brown lighthouse. But there was a north light set high on a cliff up there near Grand, uh, on Grand Island. And it was the site of a disappearance of two keepers in 1908, the head keeper George Jenry and his assistant, who was there, Ed Morrison. And so during the summer of 2020, our fall, I guess it was, we, we went up and stayed there. We stayed there uh, Labor Day week, went out to Grand Island and took a historical tour around the island and, and visited the former preserve that William Mather of the Cleveland Cliffs Company had established, this hunting preserve, and saw his lodge there and we didn't actually get to the lighthouse itself. We had the permission from the current owner, owner, Lauren Graham, to do that. But there's no transportation, and I wasn't really up for an eight-mile one-way hike that day. So, But to, to be able to go in and do uh, to walk there, and then we actually went out to the Osaba Lighthouse nearby, um, which is where some of the keepers who found the bodies of these men um, were working. We visited the local cemetery in town and and, and saw the graves of Jenry and his family. And then also, interestingly enough, uh, Ed Morrison was buried in Flint. And uh, we made a couple trips to the cemetery before we found his grave there. 
But this this story here, um, Lauren Graham had actually written a book called Death at the Lighthouse. I think this was the story that that solidified in me that there was an interest in these true crime uh, lighthouse keeper death stories and was the one that kind of prompted me to to pursue this as my second title. So I guess in that regard, I would consider that to be probably the most impactful lighthouse story with the publication of the new book. It's funny both of both of those are standout standouts as my uh, favorite uh, lighthouses. We were just at Osabo Lighthouse, and that one's so so intact. You know, even the buildings around it has has most of the original buildings there. It's it's one of my favorite ones. And then the shipwrecks that you see on the shoreline as you're approaching from yes. the, the yeah. Hurricane River campground, I believe. And it was interesting because um, that was one of the lights that I had not been at. Interestingly, even though I've spent a significant amount of time along that stretch, you know, I'm in, in Marquette every September for events. Uh, we've stayed in Munising many times. But for some reason, even the day that I took that trip out, which ended at um, the Two-Hearted River and at Chris Point Lighthouse, you know, um, I never made it to the Osabo light. And I was kind of embarrassed about that. So we finally were able to get to get the hike out there. We did walk down and, and you know, see those, uh, the bones of some of those uh, shipwrecks on the beach. And it was interesting to kind of think about and walk as you're walking those grounds. Okay, you know, here's where the second assistant keeper worked when he got word that there was a uh, a boat just you know, floating around in the water, not far from the lighthouse within a week after um, Morrison and Jenry had disappeared in June of 1908. And so he went out to retrieve the boat and in it found the, the decomposed remains of a man. And uh, there was enough to be able to identify that this man had a tattoo of 15 stars on his arm. And uh, they were able to determine that that was Ed Morrison. He'd been on the job three weeks, so nobody in town really even knew who he was. So that identifying um, tattoo was really the only means of of identification for him. And then it was, uh, I, uh, I believe, the crew from the Osable who responded to a local man who a month later in early July of 1908, found remains of another man on a beach just down the shoreline uh, while he was out searching for wild blueberries. And they determined uh, that to be George Jenry. He, the, the, the body, uh, the remains were uh, wearing a uh, vest similar to what a lighthouse keeper would wear. And then when they removed that, they did find papers in the inner pocket of that vest uh, that would have um, belonged to the, to the lighthouse keeper. And that was how his body was identified. Um, there's a lot of speculation about what happened to these two men. And it's, again, unsolved. They, Some believe that William Mather, who owned that game preserve, had the men killed. Uh, Mather owned the majority of the island, but he wanted that parcel where the lighthouse was and the government wouldn't sell it. And, and perhaps he took that out on these men and had them killed. Now, Jenry, uh, the keeper, uh, and Mather did not get along because often when uh, wild game would escape from Mather's property and make its way to the lighthouse, Jenry figured it was a free-for-all and he would kill that animal and it would feed his family. And Mather was not happy about that. Uh, there were rumors that Jenry and Morrison had a scuffle between themselves when they were out retrieving their fishing nets on the night that they disappeared. And that um, in a, a drunken state uh, that um, Morrison was uh, killed 
and Jenry was knocked overboard and drowned. The ultimate cause of death, uh, which many people question for Jenry, was exposure saying that he basically uh, was drifting at sea and died from exposure. Well, he was a seasoned Navy man. He knew how to run a boat. And so that seems unlikely. And then it was accidental drowning was the cause of death for Morris or for Jenry, whose body was found uh, on the beach. So still a lot of controversy. There are all kinds of rumors and speculation about this story. And uh, I don't think that it'll ever really be solved. Thank God when we uh, visit these beaches in the summers now, we don't have to worry about finding uh, sailors on the bluffs like at uh, the Two-Hearted River. You know, uh, they would find these bodies coming into June, July, uh, and, and all throughout the summer. Um, not as many visitors going to the beach back then, but a lot more bodies washing up on shore. So we do have that benefit when we're visiting the beautiful beaches of Michigan that we don't have to necessarily watch for old sailors' bodies washing ashore. Yeah, um, thankfully. I mean, we don't have a lot of uh, major shipwrecks like we did, you know, back in the 18 and early 1900s that we have to uh, to deal with most of the time. Knock on wood. <laughs> now, another one of my favorite ones is a, a St. Helena Island, as you pronounce it. So I'm going to keep that, that pronunciation. I'd always wanted to visit the, the once thriving island, explore the buildings and grounds. So in uh, 2016, when the straits were frozen over, I walked across the ice uh, with my beloved wow. Siberian Husky. Yeah, it was a unique op- opportunity and still a little spooky because of the currents that go through there. But what made it even stranger was on that day, the temps were around 50 degrees. So it offered the once in a lifetime chance for me to take a selfie of my, you know, of myself, obviously, without a jacket on, standing on the ice with a Mackinac Bridge in the background in one shot and the lighthouse in another shot. So here's, here's my dog and I and, and uh, standing on the straits. It's, it's, it's very, very warm. And, and uh, now I was safe about this. Uh, the girl that I was dating at the time, I made sure she walked 20 feet in front of me. So uh, that was... Uh, <laughs> Somehow I'm not surprised about that. <laughs> that's kind of a true story. So many of these stories revolve around families that would that would get into the business, the family business of, of being a lighthouse keeper. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about the Marshall family and their connection to St. Helena Island. Well, and this is another one that I almost, we were out to St. Helena because it's rumored to be haunted. And so we were out there just before the, the first book came out. I was so fascinated with the family, the Marshall family story. So it, it really goes back even further to the patriarch of this family. He was known as uh, the Old Marshal. He, he was a soldier at um, Fort Mackinac on Mackinac Island. He was the longest serving soldier when he died in his 80s. He was still an active soldier there. And he was never a lighthouse keeper. He, you know, they called him the Old Sergeant, William um, Marshall. He was never a keeper himself, but... Many of his children, his sons and grandsons and great grandsons served. And so if you take the the Marshall family tree and I actually spent time, uh, I remember vividly this in March and April, right after the pandemic hit of sitting there on the couch with putting together the Marshall family tree. Thankfully, this light is part of, or this area in the Marshall family is well-documented with Mackinac State Historic Parks. And so I reached out to them for some information. And then I started doing a lot of digging on uh, Ancestry.com and uh, Family Search and and really put together a very detailed family history for um, the Washington, uh, for the uh, Williams family here. So they had uh, several sons. Among their sons who were keepers was George Washington, 
Walter Green, and Walter had three sons who became keepers as well. Uh, William Barnum was married to their daughter, so there was that connection. And then several of Walter's grandsons went into service as well. But the one guy that was of particular interest to me, and they served in the Straits. So they served in uh, Skilligalee. They served at Wagashans, which is now in ruins. They served at Old Mackinac Point, uh, several lights in both technically Lake Huron and Lake Michigan in the Straits region. And then, um, and then Charles Heat Marshall was actually the noted keeper at St. Helena Island. And he lived there with his wife, Rose, and their children. On this one particular day, he went out and he was uh, doing one of the um, more physically demanding jobs at the lighthouse. And that was painting, whitewashing and painting the tower. Well, how do you suppose they do that, Chris. Well, I read the book, but it's it's still a, kind of a harrowing <laughs> experience, no, no matter what, especially with my uh, uh, fear of heights also, as well as yours. Yeah. So if you think about, if you've ever driven through a major um, metropolitan area and you've seen window washers coming down a skyscraper, yep. you know, and they're on that rigging system and they're making their way down, it, it's similar to that. There's a, a what's called a boatswain chair, and it's basically like a, a swing seat, like a wooden swing seat, and it has ropes, and they're rigged to shimmy up and down. You know, you pull one rope, it comes up, and you have to mechanically, you know, physically with your hands, work your way up and down and around the side of the tower. And so Charles is out there doing some painting, and he decides, I don't know why, but he decides to do it on a day when his wife and the children are off the island. Perfect He's recipe for disaster. He's the only one on the island at the time. Not a smart uh, <laughs> choice. Anyways, at some point during this process, one of the ropes that he needs to hoist himself up and down gets out of reach. He's left stranded at the top of the tower, you know, so basically he goes out over the edge of the lantern room, you know, and he's works his way down and he's stranded up there and he tries to wave um, for help with passing ships uh, that afternoon. And they just think he's being friendly. And so they wave back and they keep on going. Ultimately, he one of the stories says that he actually ends up getting flipped upside down and he's hanging there oh upside down God. and he isn't rescued until after dark that night when local uh, people in the Straits area realized the light is dark and it should be lit. His family is apparently gone for the night. So somebody goes out and they rescue him. But think about uh, what physical capacity your body would be in after being hanging upside down for an extended period of time. So, you know, all that blood rushing to his head, it didn't kill him, but it really mentally destroyed him. He was... He just was never the same. And so they they actually transported him uh, and, and set him when he was finally well enough. He was uh, transferred to the old Mackinac Point Lighthouse right there by the bridge. And he was uh, assigned to desk duty. And someone else from old Mackinac was sent over to St. Helena to uh, to serve at that lighthouse. After just a couple of years there, Charles, um, he did not get any better. And they ultimately um, he ultimately resigned or retired. And they sent him to Traverse City to the Northern Michigan Asylum. And uh, I was able to track down some census data. And in one report, he was listed, I think it was 1910, he was listed as a resident. And in 1920, he was a patient. 
And he ended up living there for 25 years until he died. I think he died of tuberculosis. Oh my God. Um, uh, just was never the same. And uh, so after his death, he was sent, uh, his body was sent back and he's buried in Mackinac City. During his uh, time there in early years at the asylum, his wife Rose died. And so the children, thankfully there was a big Marshall family. So the children um, were adopted by their aunts and uncles. His son I believe his name was Chester, actually became a lighthouse keeper uh, as well, continuing on into that next generation. But yeah, it was such a tragic story in in what happened to him. Gosh, I just can't even imagine. Well, it's not just him. It's the whole family of the drownings. How many drowned? There were a couple of them that, that drowned. Tom Marshall was a keeper at Wagashaunce. And in fact, I mentioned him briefly in the first book, because he worked out there where John Herman was the keeper and where John Herman is supposedly still haunting the place today. There was an, a near drowning by one of the nephews. It was ju- there was just a lot of harrowing things from this entire family. Um, but I guess also, if you think about it, I mean, if you've got, I think they had 12 or 13 members of the family who were in the lighthouse service in that general area. They stayed in that area. And Four generations. I mean, you increase your likelihood that something tragic is going to happen. I think you mentioned that uh, James, uh, a family member, also drowned and has, yes. a, has a marker yep. at Mackinac Island uh, yeah. at St. Anne's Parish, which, just as a side note, is the oldest uh, St. Anne's Parish in the United States. Uh, it was moved over on the uh, from the ice from the mainland to Fort Mitchell Mackinac, now, or, or Fort Mackinac from Fort Mitchell Mackinac. Uh, it's not the original buildings. Uh, there's been at least three of those, but that is the oldest St. Anne's Parish in the United States. And that's, you know, whenever we go to the island, the Mackinac Island, um, you know, everybody's like, oh, I mean, I go get my obligatory rum runner from the Pink Pony. And then I feel like I want to go and I and we go back and visit the cemeteries every time time. that we're there. You know, that's just kind of um, kind of this tribute Uh, or go up to Fort Holmes or, you know, some of these more historic sites. We like to get off of the of the main drag there. And, uh, and see more of those historic sites that, that the island uh, has preserved. Yeah, I'm the same. I always like to just enjoy the, um, the amazing um, natural beauty that's in, in parts of the island that people don't usually tra- travel to. Exactly. Any other special stories that jump out at you, Diana? One of the stories that, um, that was supposed to be in the haunted book but was kind of axed was Sandpoint Lighthouse. I had heard for years that it was haunted. In fact, when I was doing research on the first book and I was at Shishwa, a family had told me about some ghost activity at Sandpoint. I was getting some getting some apprehension from the local historical society in promoting the ghost there. So I said, all right, well, I'm not going to put it in there. But the, but the tragic death of Keeper Mary Terry um, is um, one that I've been telling for a long time. Uh, Mary Terry was the wife of John Terry, and he was appointed as the first keeper of this light, uh, which was put into service in 1868, and he died months before it, it was put into service. And so his wife, Mary, was appointed in his place. So she was one of about 50 women who served as a lighthouse keeper in Michigan, and her story is, is quite fascinating. She never married, never had remarried, never had children, never had an assistant keeper, lived at the lighthouse by herself and did the work. If she needed things done, she'd hire a local handyman to come out and do this or that. But for the most part, she was a one woman operation there. She worked for 18 years as the head keeper until she died in a tragic fire at the lighthouse. There is speculation 
uh, the fire was was not an accident. This is one that uh, one of the ones that I had researched very early on in the early 2000s about her death, and that uh, rumor was that someone had broken into the lighthouse in the middle of the night. They were attempting to rob her. She was known to have um, been very frugal with her uh, salary, which was about $350 a year. And she actually owned other pieces of property in Escanaba. But uh, as the story goes, that someone kicked in the lower level door to the storeroom under the lighthouse with the intent of robbing her. Being an astute uh, keeper, she woke up and heard this sound and went downstairs to investigate. And there she encountered an intruder. And there was a struggle and the uh, intruder killed her and then started the fire in the basement near her body so that her body would be consumed and that it would be ruled that she died in the fire. It was an accidental fire. Well, even though that was never investigated, no one was ever charged, newspaper accounts in 1886 at the time of the death published as far as uh, west as California note possible robbery and murder as a cause of her death. And yet, I don't know why no, why it was never investigated. I don't know why uh, they you know, didn't try to find out who had broken in that day. And maybe there was just nothing or not enough left after the massive fire to, to do anything. But you would still think that in the community, there would be, there would be talk and uh, somebody would have opened their mouth having known something about what had happened to her. But it always it always was sad to me that they never really followed up on this and they never really uh, did anything to to try to uh, to solve this this mystery about her death. And and I also remember uh, several years ago that Michigan History Magazine even did a cover story about her death and this story. I think it was like six pages long. And uh, still, there there was never any interest in, in solving her, her death. Such an important job. And yet when these things happened, there wasn't, wasn't any follow-up. No. And, you know, I guess, and I don't know why. I mean, was hers because she was a woman? Was it, was there just not enough evidence? Was it, you know, did they just not have an active uh, police department? I mean, they had a very um, large volunteer fire department that worked to put the blaze out. But yeah, I don't know a lot of times why, why these things weren't investigated, especially since they were government employees. You'd think that there would be a little bit more concern, you know, but she also had no descendants. So maybe they thought, well, you know, what's what's the point? I mean, lighthouse keepers back then didn't get pensions or anything like that, or their families didn't get any money as a result of the death of a keeper. So maybe they just felt what, what was the purpose of spending the time and effort and money to investigate? I don't know. They should have formed the Federal Lighthouse Bureau of Investigations. <laughs> right? <laughs> you think the U.S. Lighthouse Service, which was what was uh, staffing the lights during this time period until the 1930s, would have uh, been a little bit more more diligent in that. You know, you look at other crimes, um, I, you know, I mentioned in a previous interview, authors like uh, Tobin Book, who uh, is from the Grand Rapids area, writes a lot of historical true crime. And he's able to find documentation and information about trials that took place 
uh, in Michigan in the late 18 and early 1900s. So, you know, th there were people that were charged for murders and crimes like that back then. I just don't know why in, in many of these um, lighthouse keeper incidents, why that was not a priority. Now, you, you do great presentations uh, about this book as well as the Haunted Lights and, and, and other subjects also. Um, where can people either check out your next presentation or, or hire you for a, for a gig? Well, they can log on to PromoteMichigan.com and there's a Speaker Bureau tab there and it has the list of all the upcoming presentations. I've got a couple in the UP, uh, one in July and one in September. And uh, I believe in the fall, I will also be uh, in Charlevoix, or at some point I'm in Charlevoix. I can't think of the, the date off the top of my head. So yeah, you can look at uh, the upcoming presentations. There's a couple of them that are virtual, so people can now zoom in and watch that. And there's also details there if, uh, if anybody's looking to have me come in and talk to a to a community, a library, historical society, uh, or whatnot. So I believe you're going to be in Charlevoix as well, or were you already there? No, I'll be there. I have to look at my schedule. My schedule is getting yeah. absolutely insane. Uh, the next three days are going to be <laughs> really trying, but I enjoy this so yeah. much. And a lot of times we do uh, wind up at the same institute or you know like we both presented the historical society of michigan last year and yeah i'm uh, actually uh presenting uh with the up history conference as a keynote this year so. ah, nice. but i always like to go find your presentations because even when they're on zoom i always learn something and my greatest joy really is when i stumble upon you giving a tour in downtown petoskey and i can just sneak into the tour and see how long it takes before you notice that i'm you know, sneaking in. Some, somebody, I was on a tour the other night, somebody, I'm not even sure who it was, they, they, te they texted me on my, my phone, it's a, it's a picture of me doing my, my diatribe uh, <laughs> from the car window. <laughs> nice. I well, always think you, know, you have a you have a fan club. Yeah, and I always wonder what do people think when they see this bald headed uh, like Pied Piper walking around downtown with you know thirty forty people walking behind him. So, <laughs> no, also if somebody wants to buy uh, buy a, buy your book autographed, where can they pick it up? And um, uh, I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of lean people to to avoid Amazon and shop local, and um, so. <laughs> I appreciate that. So um, McLean and Aiken does have copies uh, downtown in Petoskey, and I try to stop in there pretty regularly and sign what they have. So typically what they have there are autographed copies. So uh, I always like to support local. And if not, you can order a copy on my website at promotemichigan.com. Just look, uh, click on the books tab. Uh, there's also a children's version um, of Michigan's Haunted Lighthouses for about third grade reader level. Uh, and uh, you can pick them up that up as well. I did not actually write that one, um, but it is based on the stories in my first book, and it is available on my website. If you haven't checked out Diana's books or attended one of her presentations, I certainly really encourage you to do so. They're always great events, and um, she's very knowledgeable in several aspects of Michigan's history, obviously. So thank you so much for joining us again, Diana, and a great look with the new book. All right. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past with our special guest, Diana Stampler, author of the new book, Death and Lighthouses on the Great Lakes.